Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing through Romans. Man, we have spent a lot of time on Romans, and we're not done yet. <laughs> but, this is good. I mean, if there's a book to spend, I mean, they're all good, but like we said, well, I can think of a few maybe that. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. I can't say that on the podcast. Yeah, you were talking about your own books, right? No. That you could find on Amazon.com. Uh, so anyway, let's jump into this. And man, we're talking about Romans nine through eleven passages that split churches, passages that. You know, basically you have people in Alabama who claim either Auburn or Alabama, and then you have Romans 9 through 11. And are there two more divisive things in America yeah. <laughs> that divide groups of people? And, and evangelical churches. And even, literally, and even, it's, yeah. it's Roll Tide, War Eagle, and Romans 9 through 11. So yeah. let's, uh, let's talk about this. In these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, many uh, people claim that Paul predicts that there will be this end times restoration of Jewish people prior to the coming of Jesus. Right. And and th so this is attached to eschatology, the study of end times. And so a, a lot of times uh, something like Romans 9 through 11 is read in conjunction with what's happening in Revelation chapter 7 and 144,000 who are contrasted against this great multitude. So like, is there a connection? What, you know, I, I don't know how deep we want to go into these things tonight, right. but there's definitely that connection. And if you're in an evangelical church, it probably wouldn't be uncommon for you to hear these sorts of things connected. Yeah. And so let me first comment. This has no connection to Revelation 7 and 144,000. Okay. That's just silly. But some people try it. Second thing is, this is the only text in the New Testament that really discusses this issue. Romans 9 through 11, and the idea that there'll be a, la a mass conversion of the Jewish people at the end of time, or before the return of Jesus, something along those nature. But because this issue is so significant in kind of the evangelical world, we're going to talk about it a couple of times. So just to give everyone a preview, we're going to discuss it tonight and kind of give more my take on it. Then we're going to go ahead and discuss it. I think we discussed it with Michael Gorman on the previous episode, just briefly. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to bring in two scholars, Gary Burge and Daryl Bach, who are on different sides of the aisle from one another and let them discuss their different views. Then we're going to bring in uh, Scott McKnight and have an interview with Scott McKnight. And we're going to ask him about this question also. So we're really going to kind of hit this because it, it, it's a significant issue. And then we may even bring in a Messianic Jewish uh, Christian mm. to kind of talk about, hey, let's talk about the present day situation of Jews and Judaism. The second thing is, is that Romans is so significant to understand it for the rest of the New Testament, as you and I were talking about before uh, we started the, the recording. And so... We're spending a lot of time on Romans, and I think it's going to really help set the table for the rest of the, of the New Testament. But here we go. Romans 9 through 11. The first thing is, is that there's a lot of scholars on, really good scholars on kind of both sides of the aisle on this one. And we were even discussing this with Michael Gorman, and his answer was, you know, we need to approach this with a measure of humility. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the argument in the book of Romans has been pretty strong. Paul has been adamant that God has been faithful to his covenant and to, his, to the covenant people. Uh, there's, there's a believing remnant among the Jewish people that we'll get into tonight. Paul's an example of that. So it's like, oh, you know, the, God forgot about the Jews. Like Paul's like, I'm Jewish. What are you talking mm -hmm. about? And then he's going to argue that there's going to be this ingathering of the Gentiles, which is obviously happening in Paul's lifetime in his ministry. That's what's going on. But Paul's answer is, hey, this was the very purpose for Israel. This is what Israel was called to do. So the probably the best thing to do to start a look at Romans 9 through 11 
is understanding the book of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter 30 in particular. So let me kind of set the stage really briefly and then let's look at the beginning of chapter of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So in De Deuteronomy 27 through 30, you have the discussion of God giving the covenant to the people of Israel, the law of Moses, and saying, if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. And if you do these things, the other things, or don't do them, you're going to be cursed. And the idea behind that is, is that if you do these things, I'll bless you and the nations will see how great a God I am and how great a people you are. And the nations will want to join. That's why I'm going to bless you. And But if you don't do these things, you're going to disgrace my name, as Ezekiel would say, or Jeremiah would say. You're, you're making a mockery of my name because they're looking at Israel as my people and you're doing all these stupid things. I, I'm going to have to curse you because you're making a disgrace of my name. And the ultimate curse, and then at Deuteronomy chapter 29 now, is you're going to be sent out of the land. So the promise of the covenant is land and family. And here's this land I'm going to give you. Obey the covenants, and I'm going to bless you. Disobey, and I'm going to curse you. We all know the story. Israel doesn't obey, and they get cursed, and they get kicked out of the land eventually. The book of Deuteronomy, then chapter 30, then comes into the story uh, by saying, okay, now when you're in that foreign land, and then you remember, it says in chapter 30, verse 1, and there you call to mind all and all the nations where I have sent you, verse 2 says, and you return to the Lord your God. And the word for return is basically the word for repent. You repent. And you obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to all that I've commanded you today, you and your sons. Verse three, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. Verse three, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the peoples from where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The promise of Deuteronomy 30 is when you're in that foreign land, like Daniel chapter 9, and then you repent, then I'm going to bring you back. And I believe, and we've discussed a little bit already, that this is what Jesus is proclaiming. This is what the New Testament is proclaiming that the restoration of Israel is taking place in Jesus. Repent. That's why the Gospels begin uh, with repent. The kingdom of God is at hand and believe in the gospel and this, this great restoration is taking place. I think this is the first key. I think underlying much of the argument of the, of the New Testament then is that Deuteronomy 30 has been fulfilled in Jesus. So let's kind of begin now looking at Romans 9, 1 through 5. And I don't know if you want to read. You want to read that part? Those yeah. That passage, Vinny? Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And there's a great controversy over Romans 9, 5. Is, mm -hmm. is he calling Christ God or not? It, yeah. That's okay. But notice verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is discussing this issue, of, and he never mentions what the issue is. It seems that we can infer from what he says that the issue is the Jewish people and whether or not God's promise to the Jewish people has failed. Has God been faithful to the promise with, with the Jewish people? The reality is that the majority of Jewish people have not believed in Christ. And Paul might be concerned that the Gentiles in Rome are actually happy to see that the Jews stay in that condition. Remember, this is, we talked about this already, this contention between the Jews 
and the Gentiles. So Paul even asked in Romans 11, verse 1, has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means. So the question then becomes, well, you know, how does Paul know this? And as we're going to discuss in Romans 11, Paul says his own answer is, look, I'm an Israelite. Clearly, God has not forgotten all of the Israelites. I'm an Israelite. And so Paul's answer is that the Jewish unbelief is the problem. It's not God's failure to be faithful to his own promise that's the problem. It's their unbelief that's the, that's the problem. Yeah, and then what we really see here, which is consistent just for Pauline theology, but especially here, the, the point is that Christ is the fulfillment. And I and I think that's exactly the case. And, and again, we're going to discuss with Gary Birch and Daryl Bach and, and have them kind of give their particular take. And I think they're both going to agree that Christ is the fulfillment. The question is, to what extent mm -hmm. is Christ the ultimate fulfillment and all things come through Christ? Thus, Jesus is the Jew. Jesus is Israel. Promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. Or is there still this place left over for Israel? Maybe I'll say, and is there a place left over for Israel? Also, I think Daryl Bach will, will kind of argue there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the point. Yes. So then, like Paul does consistently in his theology, the point he's bringing to a climax in Romans is that Christ is the fulfillment of what we see in you know, the old covenant, the, yeah. the, the Israel story. Yes, I think exactly the point. In Romans 10, 4, Paul's even going to say that Christ, that the law has reached its, the Greek is telos, has reached mm -hmm. its, its goal in, in Christ. And the point of that then actually is the good news that Israel's role of being a light to the nations has been fulfilled because the nations are indeed believing. We pick it up at the end of Romans 9 then, Romans 9, 30 through 33. I think the point so far in the argument of Romans 9 is that uh, Israel has come under judgment and only a remnant's been saved. And Paul says in verse 31, what then shall we say? That verse 31, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained it. Now, again, the word righteousness again means faithfulness or membership within the covenant. When, when used of God, it means it's faithfulness to the covenant. The righteousness that the Gentiles have attained is the entrance into the covenant. The idea being the Gentiles who did not pursue the covenant with Israel have attained the covenant. And they did so not by following the law, in verse 30, Paul says, but by faith. And now Israel, ironically, and maybe even tragically, in verse 31 of Romans chapter 9, Israel sought covenant membership through the law, but they didn't get it. And the problem with that is, and I think Paul argues this earlier in the book of Romans, and we kind of really didn't spend a lot of time on this, but in Romans 7 through the beginning of chapter 8, Paul's argument is that the law is good, but it can't bring about covenant membership because we're sinful. And ultimately, it's just simply going to be a stumbling block. And I think ultimately that fulfillment comes in Jesus. So let's pick it up in chapter 10 then. And here's one of the things I think that we can learn from if you're following along in your Bible. And by the way, this is going to be a little bit more of a, hey, we're really looking deep at the text. I encourage you to kind of the best you can have your Bibles open and following along. And if not, kind of make notes and kind of go back later on to, to follow along. But in Romans 10, the Greek word gar, which is translated for, so gar is off, it just means for, and I think we mentioned this before, that the word for in English is often just a preposition. This is a gift for you, but in Greek, it often can, it can be a preposition as well, but this word, the word gar is not used that way. It's used to link something with something that was previous. So let's go to Romans chapter 10, uh, verse one, where Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer is, is for their salvation. And now look at verse two, four, look at verse three, 
four. Mm -hmm. And again, most translations will pick up the word four here. Mm -hmm. Verse four, four, verse five, four. So four verses in a row, two, three, four, and five, all begin with this word four. And in Greek, it's the second word in the clause, but that's okay. Uh, and he says in verse one, for I testify that they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. And verse three, they know about God's righteousness or his covenant faithfulness, but they tried to establish it on their own. And verse four, for Christ is the, well, my translation says the end of the law. Yeah, that's what uh, I for, The problem here is that telos can mean the end, but mm -hmm. it probably means the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the law was always, it didn't end with Christ. Mm -mm. Christ was the goal. It was... Mm -hmm ultimately always pointing us to Jesus, the significant statement, Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the goal of the law. And again, in verse 5, we have this, for Moses writes that a man who practices the right righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that right righteousness, but instead it's through faith in Christ. Then we go to verse 6, and again, we have a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30 again. Don't say it's up in heaven, it's in your heart, and uh, or, or it's in heaven, who will ascend into heaven, or who will descend into the abyss. And Paul's answer is, what Deuteronomy 30 is saying is, it's about Jesus. Mm -hmm. But instead, verse 8, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, which is again a quote from the Old Testament. That's the word of faith that we're preaching. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that's a very important phrase for what we're going to get into. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, verse 9, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, look at the look what happens again. Four in mm -hmm. verse 10, four in verse 11, four in verse 12, four in verse 13. And again, the word four is meaning the reason why. So here's our statement. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And remember, the word is, it's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And the reason why this is true is because, verse nine, verse 10, because with a heart, a person believes. Um, mm -hmm. So the word for means the reason why, and you can even translate it as because. It works better as for, but in English, it has this connotation of because. Because with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, it confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for... There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Now, verse 13. I think this is really important aside from the issue of Israel and Palestine and, and modern day Jews and Zionism mm -hmm. and all that good stuff. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then we have a string of four, 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 four. The reason why is... And the final one of those is the verse 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, when Paul says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he's quoting Joel chapter 2, verse mm -hmm. 32. And Joel 2, verse 32 says, whoever will call upon Yahweh, Yahweh. <laughs> yeah, will be saved. But Paul is now saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Why? Because Joel says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And therefore, Jesus is Lord. So I think that's really significant for us as Christians to grasp, as we've discussed a number of times. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. This is the key proclamation. But I think this is Paul's argument, that Jesus is Lord. And he's arguing that since the goal of the law was fulfilled in Christ, or pointing us to Christ, then Christians are, by faith, 
doing the law. And I think that's the whole point. And because he quotes Leviticus 18.5, those who do the law shall live by the law. But we are through Jesus. Paul is really getting at is, yeah, hey, this, that God was faithful to his covenant promises to Israel through Jesus. And that's what the law was pointing to all along. This is interesting because I've heard this many times, especially in, in my tradition, where verses nine and 10 are huge. Uh, yeah. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this now becomes the justification for something like uh, a sinner's prayer. Yeah. And I've heard people, uh, you know, in, in traditions that will embrace that kind of idea that it's like if you don't say the sinner's prayer you actually can't be a christian because and they would point to something like romans 10 9 and 10 which is interesting because they're making this about the individualism of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of salvation and it's it's actually voiding the whole argument that's happening in chapters 9 through 11. yeah because paul's answer is is that the law was pointing us to jesus and that mm -hmm. through jesus we're fulfilling the law mm -hmm. so the irony is or maybe even tragedy is and it's not always a tragedy right again people might actually come to Romans 10, 9, and 10 and say, okay, I believe, and they mm -hmm. truly come to faith in Jesus. That's Absolutely. No, no question about mm -hmm. it. But when we leave it as, it's only by faith, and it's only by believing and confessing with your mouth, and that's it. They fail to understand, as you're pointing out, the very argument of Romans 10 is that the law is fulfilled in Jesus, mm -hmm. and they leave out the very doing of the law and, and what, it, what it means to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. So I can really imagine that some of those Jewish believers would still wonder like, hey, I thought we were the special ones. Why is it that none of the Jews have believed? You know, where does that leave us? Like this is a, a crisis of deep conscience looking back at your lineage for thousands of years where, where people are just steeped in this tradition of identity. And then you have some who believe in the Messiah and mm -hmm. most who don't. That like That's got to be so difficult. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and I think this is the question of Romans chapter 11, and it's been much debated. And I think, and ultimately we need to end with the question of what does this leave the modern day Jewish people? But I think mm -hmm. this is what's, what's going on in Romans chapter 11. Yeah. So how does chapter 11 unfold then? Well, I think the chapter starts with kind of asking two questions in Romans 11, 1 and Romans 11, 11. And in both cases, Paul answers the questions uh, in, uh, in Greek, it's meganoito. Uh, which is, God forbid, it's a really strong statement of, of, of the negative. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, it says, has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is, no. Mm -hmm. you know, literally, this God forbid. And Paul's answer is, look, I'm a Jew. And look what he says. I'm a seed of Abraham, he says. Chapter 11, verse 1, God, has God rejected his people? And he says, look, I'm an Israelite. Mm -hmm. I'm a descendant. And the word for descendant is, I'm a seed of Abraham or the tribe mm -hmm. of Benjamin. So God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, verse 2. And that's an important Paul word, seed. Yes. We'll, we'll see that in other places. You'll, you'll see it important. in the book of Galatians, but it's yeah. an important um, biblical word yes, because yeah. the seed of the woman mm -hmm. and the seed of the serpent. So mm -hmm. it's, it's this promise of the seed that will yeah. come that will crush the serpent's head. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're waiting for that seed. And the answer is, oh, that's coming, Jesus. And Paul, and we're going to see this in Romans 16 also. So, so anyway, so Romans 1, 
Romans 11 then begins in verse 1 with this question of, has God for, forgotten the Jewish people, rejected the Jewish people? And Paul's answer is, no, not God forbid. And then he gets down to verse 5. He says, look, there's, there's a remnant. There still is. At the present time, there's a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And the answer is, the church still started amongst the Jewish people, right? It, it still has this Jewish um, heritage to it. It started in Jerusalem amongst Jewish people. The disciples mm -hmm. were all Jewish people. In fact, and after the book of Acts, they had trouble leaving Jerusalem and Judea mm -hmm, until the mm -hmm. vision of Cornelius. So then Paul says in verse um, six, but it's by grace. And if it, verse six, and if it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it had not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. And so then he gets down to verse 11 now. Second question. I said then, did they all stumble so as to fall? So here's the next question. That is, well, God hasn't forgotten his people. And the answer is, well, but those who fell, who stumbled, have they have they been kind of fallen for good, so to speak? And Paul's mm -hmm. answer again is, meganoito. Mm -hmm. No, God forbid. There's no way that Israel is not permanently fallen. And this becomes the question of, well, what does he mean by permanently fallen? And just a quick side note here. This is the only text in the New Testament that seems to address this particular question. And that always makes it difficult to understand because we have to get, we have to say, well, exactly what is it that Paul was discussing here, mm -hmm. which we're still troubling a little bit to figure out the context of Romans. And I think we have the idea, the Jews and the Gentiles and the conflict there that we've, we've brought up and we'll bring it up again with Scott McKnight. But then exactly what does Paul mean? And I think we've, well, I think we know, but again, the fact that scholars, the really good scholars, conservative evangelical are on both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. here tells us that, that we kind of have to be careful here. Okay, so if Paul's point is that God has not rejected his people, uh, because after all, some Jews are Christian, which we need to remind ourselves, we've talked about this so many yes. times, there's not a separate, it's not, the, it's not the Jews and the church, or the Jews and the Christians. The Christian church is, it was primarily Jewish, and then started including Gentiles. So we want to uh, dispel that, that distinction. But what does this say about the rest of Israel, those who are not uh, part of the people of God in terms of the church? I think what Paul does now in the rest of Romans 11 is he tries to answer this question. Remember, has God has God rejected Israel? No, God forbid. Has Israel failed permanently? No, God forbid. And he now has three parts in, Rome, in Romans chapter 11. The first part is in verses 11 through 16. And the question and Paul that Paul responds to now is this, is that what happened to Israel has been for the good of the Gentiles. And the result of that is that Israel is going to become je jealous. So he, he begins to say in chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, the stumbling of Israel was the means by which Gentiles have come to faith. And so he says in verse 12, their transgression was riches for the world. So this is good news that the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham are happening because the Jewish hardness of heart has led to the Gentile conversion and the openness of the Gentiles coming in. Uh, that's the first thing he's saying. Now, note verse 13. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He's probably addressing the Gentile arrogance hmm. because they're in danger of falling into the same trap of superiority that the Jews had fallen into. Hey, I thought we were cho the chosen people. And so that, in a sense, that's addressing chapter two, because yeah. that was that was one of the, the arguments there that the Jews are doing. Don't do the same thing they, they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Now it goes to verse 14. The, the goal of this is going to move Israel to jealousy. And the result is that it's going to save some of them. Look at verse 14 again. 
It says, if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For verse 15, if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? So here's, here's your first image. Now, Paul, Paul's answer is, the Jewish unbelief has led to the Gentile evangelism and the Gentile conversion. And then the goal is that that's actually going to drive the Jews to jealousy and then bring them back into the faith. All right, now, the second part of the argument, which is in verses 17 through 24, is that the Gentile, he's speaking now against the Gentile arrogance. And he's simply saying, okay, look, the Jewish people are like branches of, of this tree uh, that was broken off. And the Gentiles, the unbelief, the unbelieving Jews have been broken off. Again. So the unbelieving Jews are like broken off branches from this tree. And Gentiles have then been grafted into this tree. The idea of that is, is that Israel can be grafted back in as long as they don't remain in unbelief. And I think the idea of what Paul's getting at is, hey, you Gentiles need to first off know your place, right? Again, he's, he's speaking with the Gentile arrogance a little bit here. You Gentiles need to know your place. And that is, you're just simply grafted in as wild offspring into this tree that's the inheritance of God. But God's going to bring the family members back into this tree also. Now, the tree is an olive tree, which is a common symbol for Israel in the Old Testament. And again, the point is, some of the branches were broken off for 17 you're the wild olive branch that were grafted back in. But the tree is the Messiah. It's mm. Christ. And we're going to become partakers with them together. And Paul's answer is in verse 18, then don't be arrogant. And verse 20, what counts is faith. And the Gentiles, you also have to maintain your faith. And then in verses 23 and 24, the Jewish people will be grafted back in as long as they don't remain in unbelief. And I think this is the first key that I would point out, and that's this, that the tree is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's the same tree. It's one tree. And that tree is, I like to use the, the phrase people of God, because when you say Israel, or the church, mm -hmm. you just get confused. So the, let's just say the people of God, those who are God's chosen people in the Old Testament people, Old Testament text, predominantly Jewish people, but you have Rahab and you have Uriah the Hittite and you have uh, others that are brought into the fold. And then in the New Testament, we're the people of God, the people who are followers of Jesus. And then it's ultimately the same tree that they were cut off from for their unbelief. We were grafted in because of belief and through belief. But ultimately, them, they, the Jewish people, are going to be grafted back in themselves. So the third part of Paul's argument then is verses 25 through 32. And this is the debatable instance. What does Paul mean here? And he says simply that the hardening of the Jews... And then the gathering of the Gentiles is going to be the means through which God's going to save, quote, all Israel. So he starts, let's look at the text. It says in verse 25, For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you won't be wise in your own estimation. Again, he's probably speaking to the Gentile arrogance. That a partial hardening has happened to the Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Ah, so this becomes kind of the crux interpreter. Like, what's what is what does he mean? A partial hardening has happened to Israel, and the word partial, partial, by the way, is um, adverbial, and what it most likely means is like for a little while, mm -hmm. instead of temporal phrase. Uh, uh, it's like until this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so th the Jewish people have been hardened. Mm -hmm. Now, what does Paul mean? The fullness of the Gentiles. You know, what what is this supposed to mean? until the, the gospel is preached to all the nations or until the 
number of converts that are going to be saved are going to be saved, and that's been reached. We don't know, you know, exactly what Paul's getting at. But his first point is that until the full number of Gentiles has come in, Israel's been hardened. Now, at the same time, Israel's been grafted in for the last, I, I think this is an important point, for the last 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. There are Jewish people who are Christians to this day. So it's not like, well, Israel became hardened at the time of Jesus, only some of the Jews were then saved, and the rest were cut off, and then, and then it became a Gentile religion only. There's been Jewish Christians the entire time. And so one of the questions is, is the, the conversion of the Gentiles, as Paul says, driving the Jews to jealousy and bringing them to conversion, has that been happening all along? Or is that simply this end times thing? And obviously some say it's just this end times thing. And then how do you account for Jews, people who are ethnically Jews being converted today? Right. Then the next thing he says is that all Israel will be saved. Right. And let's look at verse 26 again. He says, so all Israel will be saved. Now, earlier he says that everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And there mm -hmm. seems to be a, a really significant parallel between Romans 10, 9, that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved, resulting in salvation, and all Israel will be saved in Romans 11, verse 26. So the question now is, well, what does he mean by all Israel? I think this is a question that scholars are simply going to be divided upon. And people often land on whatever side of the aisle they already started on to begin with. I want this to be the case, so I land on that side of the aisle. But the first question is, what does he mean by all Israel? And, the, and, and some say, well, he means all Jewish and Gentile believers. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is, Paul's already said there's no distinction. In Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 12, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. So... One option is that Jew and Greek here is what he means by all Israel as the fullness of all Jewish and all Gentile believers. Perhaps the idea then would be that the Gentile, the Jews were cut off. Some of them were, of course. There's a remnant was that was saved because Paul's like, I'm Jewish. Some of the ones who unbelieved, they were cut off. The Gentiles then came in. They were grafted in the tree. That brought the Jews to jealousy. And then over the last 2,000 years, Jews have becoming Christians. And at some point, that number is going to reach its fullness. That number of Jewish and Gentile believers reaches its fullness, and thus all Israel will be saved. So that's one view that some people will hold to, and I, I personally land there. Others will simply say that, no, what Paul means by the uh, all Israel will be saved is that all the elect from the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. and, and the idea that Israel in Romans eleven twenty six means only the Jewish people. And again, okay, that's fine. I don't think that's the way Paul's using the word Israel here. And I think he's simply, you know, he's already said in Romans 9, 6, he kind of uses Israel both ways. Not all Israel are mm -hmm. Israel. And I think what Paul is doing in Romans 9 through 11 is that he's defining Israel as those who are in Jesus. Um, but nonetheless, some will hold to that, 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 that view. Others will simply say, no, it's national Israel. And this is mm -hmm. a strong, you know, what we, what we call this dispensational view that's not really massively popular today, but you do see it out there. So a third view says that all Israel will be saved refers to the nation of Israel as a whole, maybe not every individual within it, but you're going to see this Jewish conversion of the Jewish nation. And this view really makes a majorly big deal about the state of Israel becoming a, a nation in 1948, becoming an official state. And there you go. That's what's going to happen. Uh, some will say the Christians get raptured out of the way and the Jews become converted, some supposedly in light of Revelation chapter 7, which I don't think fits at all. Yeah. Can, can I ask a question and interject? Because yeah. there is a translational issue. There's two 
more recent translations that have popped up in the last 20 years that actually do something different with verse 26. So I'll, I'll read the ESV and the, the CSB, the uh, Christian Standard Bible, does a very similar thing. So uh, reading the end of chapter of, of verse 25 and leading in, because okay. the context is going to help, that makes sense. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And then verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Yeah. So what, what you read in the New American Standard, it would say, and so all Israel would be saved. Mm. And that's that's mm. probably the, the yeah. traditional uh, translation. ESV and both the CSB say, and in this way, making it more of a commentary. And so I'm curious, even when you look at the Greek, it, we don't really go Greek heavy on this, but we have mentioned gars tonight, um, the adverb uh, utos. utos. It usually means and so or something like that, but it definitely can mean like in this or like this or something like that, right? Yes. And I think that's actually the, a better translation, in fact. So the, the next, the first question actually then is, is what does Paul mean by Israel? Mm -hmm. Does he mean the Jewish and Gentile believers as a whole? Does he mean Gentile, Jewish believers, or does mm -hmm. he mean like the national state of Israel, the people, the Jewish people as a whole? Right. The next question then becomes, well, when's this going to happen? I think it's going to happen over the, the course of history. Mm -hmm. And I think the Greek actually favors that. The idea being that in this manner or in this fashion, by this means, it doesn't convey a temporal sequence. And that's, that's what people do. They, they load this with, oh, like at the end of time is when this happens. Mm -hmm. And so then all Israel will be saved. So after the Gentiles have become converted, then Israel will be saved. I don't think he's saying that as a temporal sequence. I think he's saying, as you pointed out, that some of the translations are picking this up with, is that he's simply saying that in this manner. And I think that in the manner is the Jews are cut off, the Gentiles are grafted in, that drives the Jews to jealousy, and then some of them become Christians mm -hmm. as a result. And I think that's what's been happening over the course of, of, of history. So uh, I think that's the best way to translate it. And there's a lot of arguments for that, but I think we'll get a little bit too nerdy in the Greek for our, our listeners right now if we, if we get into that. There's a third question. So the first question then is, you know, who is Israel? The second question then is, when is this gonna, going to occur? And I think it's going to occur throughout, throughout the course of history. The third question then is, is, well, how is this going to occur? And I think this is another important point of the, of the conversation. I think the answer is through people coming to faith in Jesus. I think this is the whole point of the whole text. They're going to come to faith in Jesus. And it could be, well, they come into faith in Jesus by their own faith, or they come into faith in Jesus through some divine intervention. And again, the people who put this um, eschatological or end times um, reading on the text, they're reading as saying, oh, the when is after the Gentiles, like temporally after, instead of like in this manner mm -hmm. or, or in this during this time. And then the way it's going to happen is some divine direct intervention that God's going to divinely save 144,000 Israelites from the, from the Jewish people. Now, let me point this out, by the way, and, and I hope we're going to have a conversation with a Jewish, kind of a Messianic Jewish Christian. To talk, hey, let's talk about the Jewish people and evangelism and Jewish Christians and things of that nature. One of the things that you'll often hear from Jewish people, and I mean Jewish non-Christian people, so Jewish, whether they're practicing mm -hmm. Judaism or not, is their rejection of Christianity is that Christianity makes Judaism kind of a puppet. Uh, you don't care about us. Mm -hmm. You only care about us as we fulfill some end times scenario that you might have. You don't care about the state of Israel. You just care about the state of Israel because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. And that means your Lord Jesus is going to come back someday. You don't care about us. You just care about like, well, as soon as all the Jews are saved, then Jesus returns. And I think there's legitimacy mm -hmm. to this. 
that care about Jewish people as Jewish people, not Jewish people as, well, the objects of our evangelism for the sake of our eschatological perspectives. I think there's something to be said for that. So that's the third question then is, how is this going to occur? Is it going to become through people coming to faith in Jesus, which I think is the case, or is it going to be like God's divine intervention as second coming of Jesus comes and at least the rapturing of the church, and then all the Jews become Christians that this for like mm -hmm. the last seven years, but have to go through a tribulation as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to this tree metaphor, because yeah. this is actually something that we don't want to move past. Right. Um, your understanding is that the tree is the people of God, which, you know, Israel. It, in it the Old Paul, context. Yeah. Part yeah, of and, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that the Jews who failed to believe were cut off and Gentiles who did believe were grafted into that tree. So this will lead some Jews to jealousy, and then they will come to faith in Christ and be grafted back into tr that tree. So are you stating that for Jews to be grafted back in, they must believe in Jesus? It's not their tree anymore. Is that what you're saying? Like, do we phrase it like that? Or how do, what do we do with this? Yes, I think that's the answer, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Or as Acts 4 says, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved that it is through Jesus. But again, bear in mind, this is not a Christian thing mm -hmm. in the sense that Jesus is Jewish, right? Th this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. This is exactly what God had been promising all along. Jesus is Israel. He's the son that is indeed Israel. And as we looked at Romans chapter eight, that all who come to faith in Jesus are indeed inheritors with Jesus. So I, mm -hmm. I see no other way. Now, by the way, that leads to a really provocative discussion on Jew on the on, with modern day Jews. By the way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, as kind of a and because modern day Jews take a great offense at what I just said there. Yeah, yeah. Because they're thinking, well, you're not letting us be saved by being Jews. Yes. And my answer is yes, uh, uh, but Jesus is Jewish, mm -hmm. and Jesus' answer is that I'm the one that Moses was pointing to all along. So if you actually want to follow Moses. You believe in me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's no different. And if I'm talking to a Jewish person today, and hopefully with some, with, with, uh, you know, sympathy and empathy and everything else, is to say, what if Isaiah said that the way to, the way to practice Judaism was to do this? You would say, all right, I'm on board. That's the way to practice Judaism. Well, what if Jesus was a prophet mm -hmm. along with Isaiah? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And as Christians say, more than a prophet. But if Jesus is the same as Isaiah, and Jesus says, and this is the way we do it, then we're not saying, oh, you, you Jews have to jump over to Christianity. We're just simply saying, no, you Jews have to just simply continue to practice Judaism, but as Jesus understood it, as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Mm. So belief in jesus is in the old covenant then i mean like you know you, you just said what if jesus is a new prophet you know like what if he was a prophet can't we can't we say that though about how we read the old testament like jesus is back there i mean that's what the, yeah. he even said that he's like hey like you you read moses he was just talking about me you so so in a sense you know we, we could as good christians when we do uh evangelize we should know our old testament's better to actually evangelize the way the early christians did which is just a point to the scriptures anyway yes the distinction is this so some people point to jesus's statement like hey you gotta get rid of your old wine skins because i got new wine or you gotta get rid of your old garments because i got a new patch and what Jesus is saying there is not like discard Judaism 
and, as, and adopt Christianity as though there's something different. He's simply saying, your old way of looking at things is not going to work for what I'm doing. Mm. And what he's pointing out that is saying is, your old way of looking at things was nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Your old way of looking at things was, this is for the Jewish people and the Jewish people only. And if you Gentiles want to come in, well, that's fine. But circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping, all those things you have to do also. And Jesus comes along and says, you know, guys, I'm making this through faith in me and by belief in me and by a radical transformation of following me. And therefore, Gentiles are welcome too, as long as they confess. In fact, if you want to be saved, you have to repent. And I think this is why we have such a clash with Jesus and the religious leaders, because they're looking at going, no, I, I, got, I ain't got nothing to repent for, Jesus. I mean, I've gone to the temple and done all I, as Paul says, I was righteous. Mm-hmm. As, as far as legalistic righteousness was considered, I was faultless. I think it's Philippians 3. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem that the Jewish people had. And Jesus is like, no, it's through me. But your old wineskins, which were nationalistic and limiting of God and failing to see what the promises were pointing to all along. So if someone's sitting through this podcast right now, and they might be more sympathetic to the dispensational view, a Zionistic view, they, they hold very strongly to an end times position for Israel. They they currently financially give and support agencies uh, that support modern day Israel, you know, like, you know, the, the folks that we all know and love and have in our congregations and, uh, you know, have grown up with like, and, I, and I'm not saying that as a pejorative at all. It's like yeah. those, you know, I have many brothers and sisters who would be in that camp. They might be hearing us talking and especially over the last number of minutes as we've been talking about Jesus fulfilling these things, Jesus is the tree, faith, it's it's grace, not race. It's it's all these things that we've talked about. And they're going to be saying, see, it's just replacement theology, that, that word replacement theology. Um, is that what we're talking about? Because that is a view that, yes. that many people hold to. So it's not like we want to say that that's not a thing. That is a thing. But what is replacement theology? And is that what we're talking about? All right. So very, and let's finish on this. So first off, most people who throw replacement theology out is often a pejorative. In other words, it's often a, a way of silencing your opponent by saying, oh, they're anti-Semitic. As soon as you talk about, let's say, Israel-Palestine, and you talk about the Palestinians and their and their the injustices against them, and maybe the Jews and the injustices against them, and you try to have this conversation. As soon as you talk about the Palestinians and the injustices that they face, immediately someone will say, oh, you're anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And it, the conversation is over. You're done. If you get labeled as anti-Semitic, it's something you cannot recover from. And it's just mm-hmm. not fair. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, in the theological circles, they'll say, oh, you're, that's just replacement theology. Now, the irony is, you actually have uh, Schofield saying that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, mm-hmm. 6, and 7, was actually spoken to the Jewish people. Yes, yeah. And that that was God's provisions for the Jewish people, but they rejected Jesus. So then Jesus said, well, forget you guys. I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. I'll come back to you guys later. And they actually believe that the era today... To the rapture is this great parenthesis that God's plan with the Jewish people stopped with Jesus because they rejected him. He then turned to the Gentile. He's going to work with the Gentiles. And he's going to take the Gentiles out of the way, and then he's going to bring fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So what replacement theology ultimately says, and I discuss this in my book, by the way, um, these brothers of mine have a chapter on is, is this replacement theology. And the irony is, no, it's not replacement theology. And in fact, Christian Zionism has more in common with what we'll call replacement theology than what I believe, which if you want to label it, I guess I'll just say it's like fulfillment, you mm-hmm. know, fulfillment. In Je- it's Christological. It's it's focusing on Jesus as the fulfillment. That's what I believe. And I don't, I don't like labels. 
But replacement theology says that, that God came and gave his covenant to the Jewish people, but they failed and they rejected his covenant and they were disobedient. And so then God says, I'm going to turn to the nations and Jesus makes a new covenant with the nations rejecting Israel mm -hmm. and Israel and the church are two separate things have nothing to do with one another and Jewish people have to become Christians. And that's kind of the, the point that we were making earlier that the Jewish people are like, Hey, you know, this is, you, you guys are forgetting us. Like, no, no. If you think of Jesus as Isaiah, as a prophet, and obviously as more than a prophet, then you realize that Jesus is in continuity with mm -hmm. the old Testament promises. So the idea then is that replacement theology says that Jesus comes along and replaces the Old Testament Jewish people with the Christian people and with disciples. It's a new Israel. It's a new Jesus, a new Jewish people, and that the old Jewish people are done done away with. And it's like no, because the disciples were Jewish people. So what he's starting with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is Judaism and, and Jewish people. And by the way, side note here: many of the Palestinians are descendants of the first Jewish Christian converts mm -hmm. in the Book of Acts. They became Christians, identified as Christians, and maybe intermarried with other people that weren't Jewish, and because they could do so now. But nonetheless, they have Jewish blood because they're descendants from the Jewish people. You make this mistake. You go to you go to people in India and you ask them, you know, when did you guys become Christians? And they're like, <laughs> um, we've been Christians since the first century because they yeah. believe that Thomas brought the gospel to India. And then you go to Palestinians, you're like, well, when did you guys get to become Christians? somewhere between Acts chapter two and Acts chapter five, right? <laughs> I, I literally heard somebody say this. And it's like, oh, because we as Americans think, oh, America is this Christian bastion and we mm -hmm. brought the gospel to all the nations. But the reality is like, no, not at all. So, yeah. <laughs> so you, you're not just saying it's merely semantics of replacement theology versus fulfillment theology. You're yeah. outrightly rejecting the theology of replacement theology. Yep. You're saying that that is actually yeah. bad theology and I am not that. That's right. And let's also note this, since we're on the topic, and we'll finish off with this. The Christian church has been the cause of much anti-Semitism in history. Yep, yep. Much of the violence in history that happened against the Jewish people happened because of the Christians. We're talking second century and, and afterwards, mm -hmm. when they began saying, you guys crucified Jesus, and that's why Rome destroyed you. You deserved what you got. And it led to violence, more violence against the Jewish people who actually survived. Obviously, Martin Luther is one of the more famous examples. Yep. He was radically anti-Semitic. And then you go all the way to, to Hitler because Hitler used a lot of the Christian language of the Christian church to use to justify his anti-Semitism and mm -hmm. obviously the Holocaust. And I think the church has to acknowledge this and repent of this. And replacement theology leads to this because it's like, yeah, you guys, you guys rejected Jesus and you got what you deserved. It's like, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. That's not what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Good yeah. stuff. Well, hopefully this is, we took a topic that's difficult and uh, we probably, we might not have solved anything for anyone, but at least given people uh, maybe a clear framework on how to explore these things. Are, are there resources that I'm throwing off the top of your head? Are there resources or books that wade into this that you think are helpful? Because this is a difficult topic. Well, I think mine might be. I don't you, think you've meant that, by the way. No, but, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there are a number of books, and I'll put some maybe in the show notes. I'll put some mm -hmm. in the show notes. But my book is a theological look mm -hmm. at the Your book, of These Land. Brothers of Mine. Yeah, I'm sorry. My book, These Brothers of Mine. Uh, and the subtitle is a, a Biblical Theology of Land and Family and a Response to Christian Zionism. Mm -hmm. So it looks at the question of land and family and the promises of to Abraham of land and family ultimately through the lens of the temple and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this. 
and the promises of land and the promises of family were fulfilled in Jesus. And then I discuss, well, what about the questions of replacement theology and what about mm -hmm. the placement of anti-Semitism and all this kind of stuff there? So I, I deal with that. Uh, you have other books. I think Gary Birch, who we're going to have on next week, uh, has a phenomenal book. It's older now, but mm -hmm. Whose Land, Whose Promise? Mm -hmm. And it's a fantastic look at the modern conflict, especially the Palestinian plight there. Mm -hmm. David Crump wrote a book that we interviewed him on our podcast, like Birds in a Cage. And again, that's coming from a, some people might say it's a pro-Palestinian look. Mm -hmm. I think David is looking at the justice issues and saying, well, it's, it's a justice issue. And the Palestinians are the ones that are suffering the majority of the injustice there. There are some wonderful ministries like Musalaha. Uh, Jack Manayer, his father, uh, started a ministry called Musalaha. Uh, Salim Munayer in Jerusalem, that works to bring Jews and Palestinians together. Mm -hmm. And they actually go on a pilgrimage out into the desert. And it's like really interesting because these guys, they won, like, I don't trust you. And yet a Jew and a, and a Palestinian are put together, an Israeli and a Palestinian, oh, he pairs them up. So you have no option, but you have to be with this person on the, the other mm -hmm. for the next three days. I would agree. I think your book on this is probably a really good introduction because you, you're really trying to help the layperson synthesize these topics and you pull from a lot of those sources. Gary's book that you mentioned, Whose Land, Whose Promise, he also has the one on, um, uh, gosh, I forget the title of it, but that he he spends a lot of time like on uh, the gospel of john and, and yeah. looking at things like john 15. Um, so he has gosh, a book called jesus in the land that, that's what it is yes yeah. it's i think that's a helpful almost more of an exposition you go through some of the, the biblical theology that way but one book that you recommended me gosh it must have been a decade ago on the topic oh. of you had mentioned how there was christians going back to you know in palestine going back two thousand years and so it's it's Brother Shakur's uh, book yeah. on Blood Brothers, uh, which is just a great narrative in terms of really being able to look back on. In our Western American eyes, we just assume history started in 1776, <laughs> and just not recognizing that no, this this goes back a long time and it predates us. And his point of Blood Brothers is is that the Palestinian Christians are Jewish in descent, so we're yeah, Blood Brothers yeah. with the Jewish people. Yeah, uh, but he talks about the the conflict there also. So actually, yeah, Alex Awad wrote a book called Palestinian Memoirs, which is really an interesting look at what it is like to be a Palestinian and not be allowed to come home to your own country after you go away to Europe to go to, to go to school. Mm -hmm. We're at his church uh, in, in Jerusalem, and he pulls out an American passport, and mm -hmm. he says, "I'm here. I grew up in the school literally across the street, and it's a small street." From where, you're, where we're sitting right now, I grew up across the street in that boarding school. And when I went away to, to college, came back in 67, Jews had taken over East Jerusalem and they said, this is no longer your country, you came from mm -hmm. So he went to America, eventually got a foreign mission board to send him as a missionary to his own wow. city. Yeah, it's, wow. it's crazy. So, Yeah. And like you and I have talked about many times offline, this is a very complex issue and usually complex issues have complex answers. So mm -hmm. for anyone who's listening to this, even just thinking of the, the modern geopolitical issue yeah. or situation, it's not as simple as these guys are right. These guys are wrong. Just do this and the problem will be solved. This is yeah. a, a deep problem. You know, our perspective in this podcast is to say, hey, let's encourage the people of God to look at this uh, Christianly and mm -hmm. not start with the geopolitics of it and just say, okay, how do we look at loving neighbor and, and having a right biblical view, you know, on this. So anyway, we've probably been wrapping up for a while. Yeah, but, we have. But, but next week, man, I'm really excited about that conversation and to see uh, where that goes. 
uh, when we have our two distinguished guests on. And uh, let's just keep Romans going. Let's make this yeah. determine Romans. How about that? <laughs> Change the name of the podcast and everything. <laughs> so, all right, everyone. Hope you guys are uh, enjoying this. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.